You're listening to Who Raised You Podcast, a kitchen table conversation between Karen Jialian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond. Unfurled and unafraid, we're centering voices of color from flyover country, and we start every podcast with a poem. What will we remember? During these days of awe, we are told that God remembers our deeds and actions. But what will we remember? Will we remember we are Betselem Elohim, made in God's image? Will we remember that we were born free? Will we remember to breathe? Will we remember to have courage? Will we remember Ahava Rabah Ahavtanu, that we are loved by an unending love? Will we remember to breathe? Will we remember that our liberation is bound up with one another? Will we remember that we are all we got, that we can't afford to throw anyone away? Will we remember to breathe? Will we remember to love with revolutionary love? Will we remember to choose truth and honesty over being right? Will we remember to breathe? Will we remember to find that spark of divinity in the folks we meet? Will we remember to be kind? Will we remember to breathe? What will you remember? Sometimes what I say a black poet from Mississippi and a Taiwanese-American minister from Silicon Valley had a podcast. We're about to find out. We might even blow up Shuei. You're <laughs> listening to Who Raised You? A kitchen table conversation between Karen Jialian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond. As we explore how culture, family, and intersecting identities pave our way toward liberation, we want to know, who raised you? We're curious and nowadays often irritated. Sometimes we gotta catch our breath, you know? Yeah. So sit down. We have lots to talk about. Today we're joined by Koak Baruch Frazier. Koak is a healer and musician who is working toward the day everyone experiences liberation. He spends his days helping people reconnect with the world around them through better hearing and providing love and support through revolutionary listening. Koak, Koak's heart beats to the rhythm of Tikva, Teshuva, and Sadek. Our first famous question. Who <laughs> raised you? Who raised you, Koak? Uh, so, very personally, Linda and Walter Frazier, <laughs> uh, my parents. <laughs> okay. They raised me. Uh, and uh, I was also raised by a community of people that included my neighbors um, who watched out for uh, me and my older brother. Um, I can remember a time where uh, the police took my brother as he got off the school bus. Wow. They just picked him. Literally, he got off the school bus, and I, I would usually wait for him. He was four years older than me. He is four years older than me. And um, so I would get off the school bus before him, and then I would wait for him. And I remember that he was, like, they just picked him up off the street. And as he was walking from the bus, and uh, my neighbor, thank God, like my neighbor saw it and like immediately called my parents. I just remember like we had this whole little village around us, like watching over us. Even when my parents weren't home, there was this, there were people mm-hmm. um, that helped raise me. Yeah. Um, and then you know my my grandfather, blessed there was Amy minister, and so um, there's this whole like Amy church family that helped raise me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad is a handball player. Mm, okay. uh, one of the few black handball <laughs> players I've ever known. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you heard it here first. Right. <laughs> and um, so we used to go to all of these um, like, uh, championship. Uh, uh, I guess I forget what they call it. But anyway, so we would go around the handball tournaments. Tournaments. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the showdown. These, yeah, we go to all these handball tournaments, and um, so there was that family of people um, who 
it gave me a different perspective about like what life was about mm. <laughs> and, and how you can have fun um, and do things that other people don't necessarily know about and create your own family from people who aren't your blood family. So those, I would say like very widely, those I can think of the people who raised me. Mm-hmm. That memory that you were talking about, how old were you? I think I was in middle school. So, uh, you know, probably my early teens. Yeah. And why was your brother picked up by the police? You know what? I still don't know. I, I have no idea. I remember my parents, you know, getting off work and we went up to the police station. I don't remember there being a reason. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can think of was they saw some black kid mm-hmm. and they picked him up. I have no, I, I just never, never remember a reason as to why they picked him up. Where, where were you raised? Kansas City, Missouri. KC. Yeah. Which definitely has a different energy than St. Louis. Yeah, it's yeah. it's more of a slower town. I remember um, when I got here to St. Louis, I just remember how fast things went. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like how it felt to be, uh, you know, just living and breathing, it didn't feel, I didn't feel the pressure that I feel here. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember recalling to somebody, I came to St. Louis University, that's what brought me to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember telling somebody, it feels like I came to the South mm-hmm. when I came here. It didn't, the, the, the pressure of being a black person, there was definitely racism. There was definitely this feeling of that I was different. I knew I was different when I was in spaces that weren't all black. Mm-hmm. However, it's different here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a different kind of town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More pronounced. But also there are more black people in St. Louis. That's true. Which yeah. is an interesting dynamic when juxtaposed with what you say. Right. Okay. Hmm. Maybe density brings more anxiety from white people. Yeah. The more really. black people there are, the more anxious they become. Hmm. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Hmm. Well, and I'm thinking about what you said about like there wasn't a reason, and yet racism is this glaring <laughs> right, right. reason. Right. 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 That's always there. Right. Right. The reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did your family influence your sound of dissent? That's the topic of today's episode. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you're thinking with an audiologist right. or someone who is an audiologist by trade and yeah. now. And a drummer. Right, yeah. and focusing on helping people to listen deeply mm-hmm. in many ways. Right. You know. Um, music has always been a way of, um, I don't even know if I understood it as resistance, but as, as joy. And I guess as joy as resistance. Mm. Um, I, I remember my grandfather, uh, of blessed memory, my grandmother, of blessed memory, like they, they were kind of the, um, the, the rock of my mother's family. This is my maternal grandparents. And I just remember that whenever there was something that seemed tense, uh, just, you know, like family stuff, like, you know, somebody maybe having an argument or something, I just remember a song always being the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, not to say that we couldn't have conflict, but to say that let's, let's level our, our, our heads here. And so I always remember song being so important to how we communicated with each other and mm-hmm. like, and when, when like maybe there was one relative over, over here on this side of the room and another, and how like there was this call and response thing that happened in our family that I didn't really understand until I got older as to what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather was a master of energy. And that's really how I learned, you know, how to, how to manage energy well. And music seemed to be the glue that really kind of kept us together. And I think that was, Kind of my introduction into not necessarily dissent, but definitely like resistance. Like we can resist the negativity and other things that are like battling up against us with music. Is there a particular song that you sing, or it was just like things are tough now, the energy's whack, like break out in song? Like. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there is a Peterson song. That's my uh, mom's maiden name, and it's uh, charged to keep I have. And it's metered, mm. um, and so and that's that call and response still. So like my grandfather would say, 
a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a charge to It's one of those things that, like, whenever, whenever we got together to have a family reunion, we sang that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, there was a particular song. It's a lot of responsibility in that song, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, a charge to keep, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's funny because, like, when my, I was actually planning my parents' uh, funerals out, right, mm-hmm. you know, when I was there last uh, and my mom says, well, you know, we have to sing that. You have to sing that one song. <laughs> you got to sing the family song. So, like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's that glue. It's, it's that glue that, that holds us. Yeah. Mm. That's tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sound, um, you know, sound is part of what keeps me uh, from totally throwing away everything the black church means Mm. in fact the other day i posted on facebook that they they can't have gospel music back Mm -hmm. and i'm giving them everything else back but Mm. keeping gospel music (laughs) so so y'all can have that you know homophobia you can Mm -hmm. have the narrow Mm -hmm. conceptions Mm -hmm. of hell you can have all of that but you you can't have that yeah <laughs> you can't have that Aretha Franklin back. You can't have that Haley Jackson. Um, so yeah, definitely. Which brings me to what you might perceive as how the drums came into your kind of ecology of sound. How did you start to to, you know, use the drums at protests and at actions? So August Ninth was a Saturday, so mm-hmm. it was Shabbat, and I did not hear about um, what had happened with Michael Brown until Saturday night. And I remember that there was a call from the um, Ministerial Alliance uh, that said, "Come to the uh, Ferguson Police Department on August 10th." And I was like, "But why?" You know, like I was, <laughs> I was so confused with what was happening. So mm-hmm. I, you know, was trying to get myself up to speed. And I normally play the drum. Um, at the spiritual center I was attending at the, at the time on Sunday mornings. And so the drum kind of stayed in my car. And so we went to the, um, went to the, the police station. And I remember very distinctly, there was ministers and, and other folks, other uh, spiritual leaders who were um, on the parking lot. And they were, you know, engaging in prayer and uh, supplication. And it was like there was this pleading, like, God, please help us kind of thing. And I remember that there were young people that had gotten in the street at this point in time. And they said, um, so, yeah, we're done praying like that. We're going to take the street. We're going <laughs> to sit here for four and a half hours because that's how long they had Mike's body in the ground. And that was the moment I understood what exactly happened. Like, I still had no clue exactly mm. as to what happened. And that hit me so hard. So I said, I'm sitting down here with these young people. And so mm-hmm. that's what I did. I sat down. And I remember that somebody started chanting and they said, sitting down for Michael Brown, sitting down for Michael Brown. Just distinctly, I'm just starting to clap, you know, mm-hmm. some people starting to clap. And I was like, drums in my car. Mm-hmm. So I got, I actually, like at that moment, I had a chair in my car, you know, one of those like foldable chairs. Mm-hmm. And I take the chair out and I pull the drum out and I start, you know, drumming mm-hmm. and just like that, the energy changed. And mm-hmm. people yeah. who were sitting got up. And that wasn't the actual intention, right? Mm-hmm. But the energy, like they couldn't hold it. Mm-hmm. They shot up and they start, they started um, moving their, their bodies. And, and I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay, mm-hmm. Grandpa, I see you, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I see you. Like, okay. So from that moment, I was like, well, maybe I should bring the drum out again. So it, actually, there was some other, there were some other people who said, let's do some music. And so we went over to um, across the street from the police station like that weekend. And we like people came and they sang and we drummed and um, a couple other drummers came. 
and then when the when the move to um, West, uh, no, where where was it? Yeah, on the other side of uh, I guess it's West Florissant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went over to West Florissant. I, you know, of course we were in one spot and I had a drum and, uh, and then they said, no more static protest. Mm-hmm. You can no longer be in one place. You got to move around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I literally, this huge drum and I still don't know how, how much it weighs. I, I got a luggage strap and I strapped it to the drum mm-hmm. and I said, okay, so if we've got to move. Then I'll strap the drum on. And I've never done that in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I've never carried a drum before. I've never played a drum while I was walking, mm-hmm. but I did it for months on end because I felt like if we're going to move, then, and I can play this drum and I can provide a cadence, then I will do that. And I started to see that people, you know, whenever the drum was going, they, you know, people were like, okay, we can move around. And I noticed that when the drum stopped, because I just couldn't play anymore, people stopped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see you right mm-hmm. like and then I like it it took me a while to figure out what all was happening it was an instinct mm-hmm. to put the drum on and to take it with me mm-hmm. it was not something I planned mm-hmm. and um and I'm grateful that I could be used in that way mm-hmm. but um yeah it was that was something else well you know what's so powerful about it is the the deep legacy of relationship to the drum for African people and the way the drum was a main point of prohibition Mm -hmm. during the period of enslavement Mm -hmm. you know there were ancestors who lost their lives because they were caught with the drum after they had been told clearly you're not going to be using the drum because um you know dominating forces white people and slavers they had witnessed the sort of emboldening effect, Mm -hmm. the coalition building effect, how when you insert rhythm, people get on the same Mm -hmm. beat. Um, And they had already known from the indigenous brothers and sisters that you could talk with them. Yes. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that is very powerful. And when you say you were used in that way, I would submit that you were mm-hmm. used in that way. It's probably somebody's great, 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 I still have it because my dad bought it and I was like, I'm never getting rid of this even if I never play it again. <laughs> I should have kept uh, mine. My mom and I bought it during uh, a typhoon in Taiwan. Wow. If you can imagine just <laughs> wow. carrying it through the rain, like sharing one umbrella. Wow. $200. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, the trombone is an amazing instrument. They actually tried to teach me how to play the flute, and I couldn't get it. And they gave me this trombone, and here I am, this really like small, short yes. person, and I'm blowing the heck out of that trombone. Yes. <laughs> I really like to get the placement number right. seven. Yeah. <laughs> Stretch my mm-hmm. arm really wide, but I made it work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was never trained on how to play the drum. It was something that like just came to me. Um, and you know, one of the things that we did with the drum was the uh, the week before the uh, yard cider that, that yearly anniversary. Uh, so it was in 2015 in August. Um, we decided, and this is kind of like the birth of Justice Speaks, was that mm-hmm. um, we, we said that we need to provide that energy. We need to allow the drums to talk. So we said we weren't going to have, we, we weren't going to do any chanting. We just wanted to have percussion. Mm-hmm. And so there was a call for people who were percussionists to come and we set ourselves up um, right across the street from the police station and we drummed every night and talk about prohibition right mm-hmm. they they uh they actually put out a noise ordinance after we played for a couple of days and mm-hmm. said no more and they specifically said drums mm-hmm. um could be played after a certain time mm-hmm. um because that that insistence that we were definitely talking and using the drums were talking to the people and the people mm-hmm. were talking back to the drums and the drums were sending energy mm-hmm. and messages mm-hmm. like they they clued in on that it mm-hmm. wasn't just that we don't it's too loud like yeah. they understand and and mm-hmm. have, have 
still trying to pro, you know, keep us from, from using the, the drug. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking about how it's such a powerful contrast, justice beats versus the sound of oppression, mm. because we know that they use their batons and wrap the ground yeah. to explain a very traumatic <laughs> sound. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very trying to be in unison but very intimidating mm-hmm. and at the same time in in my mind i i perceive justice beats as insistent yet joyful mm-hmm. and there's something about it that's very organic because there's all the different instruments and there's no rules about what beat you're supposed to do right. and i notice that you all speed up you get louder you get softer mm-hmm. and it's not through any sort of command whatsoever yeah yeah, it's definitely a spiritual and energetic connection that happens out there on the street. And um, and the people who come, like we actually in the beginning, we do get together with many people who say they want to be a part of a group. And the directive is we are energy workers. Mm-hmm. We are not just banging on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, we do some collective breathing and intention setting before we start. Mm-hmm. But then there is no, you know, like, let's speed up, let's slow down. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. all organic and, uh, and I believe directed by our ancestors and the universe because um, I'm, I'm very clear that I am not the one who's directing what's happening. Mm-hmm. I am clearly just a vessel and whatever happens, happens. And I remember at some point when we were across the street from the police station during that week beforehand, that the the protest was coming our way mm-hmm. and the sound of the drum changed. And it wasn't anything that we did. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't say, stop, let's play a different beat. Like something changed. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it was like a call of the warriors were coming mm-hmm. towards us. And we noticed we noticed a lot afterwards. I was mm-hmm. like, did you notice that that changed? <laughs> but the action that was coming towards us changed. And it was something about the synergy of what was happening in this group of, like, there were three or four of us or five of us there. Mm-hmm. Something changed. The energy changed. And so the, the drum changed. And I just thought, it, I'm always getting reminders about how, like, this ain't about KB. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this is about the energy that's needed. And I just try to provide whatever is coming through. Mm-hmm. And I know that the other people who participate are doing the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious um, about what's going through your head, Treasure, because you're currently doing some work about our own or oral histories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's anything in what KB is saying that's sparking in you. Well, I was, you know what? I was, as we were talking, I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. Because I, right? Right, yeah, my whole Let's dissertation. Let's not downplay what you're doing. <laughs> my whole dissertation is focused on the recorded performances of, of certain black female poets mm. and doing close listenings mm. and looking at how, um, how they situate liberatory sound, what is liberatory sound, and in particular, how do black people access those tones that move us? Mm. Like when when you sing a charge to keep I have, you know how when you're in the congregation and everybody Mm. joins in, there is something that is right up in here. Yes. I'm touching my side. No, right, yeah, this right. is a visual. This is a visual medium, but right, right, I'm right. touching my side. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I assert in the dissertation is that um, that's a stored up body of knowledge yes. that we're accessing. Yes. yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you are black and Jewish, black and Jewish, mm-hmm. black and Jewish, black and Jewish. So, how do you move from? one set of tonal expectations that were in the AME and the black church mm. to another set of tonal expectations that are in Judaism mm-hmm. because they're going to have a whole different set of songs, sounds, mm-hmm. the way they le- read liturgy. I'm calling it liturgy, but how do you, how do you reconcile that? Do you find it pleasurable, diverse? Do you miss the old sounds? You tell me. <laughs> There's, that's that's so interesting. Um, so one of the things that 
moves me is that a lot of it is the same. Mm. Um, and I, I I'm I'm feel like part of my uh, life journey is to remind people where this came from because Judaism is a very indigenous um, and raw religion or spiritual practice and because of its exposure to the western way of thinking and of doing and of being it's got caught up in people's heads but you'll see like these bursts of um, very charismatic groups of people the Chabad, the, the, the Hasids are one of those groups right mm-hmm. um, and there's this thing that happened, um, it's called a Nagoon, and it's a wordless song, and it reminds me of like when Granny would be like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. like, um, but so they, there's these mm-hmm. wordless songs, and you can hear it, um, I'm just do this, this one round of it. This connection of there's sometimes my granny would just say there aren't any words to express, mm-hmm. so I just got a moan or that's you know, right. And when that's, I can't say a word, I just wave my hands. Yes, and like you know, all of these <laughs> things are kind of like they're in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, and you know the um, a lot of the a lot of the prayers are sung. All it's it's so sometimes there is this different sound. There's definitely this influence of Eastern Europe mm-hmm. um, in a lot of the the liturgy, but there's also like a lot of Sephardic um, influence, mm-hmm. and so there's there's like this rhythm to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, these beats, even though that you know a lot of especially traditional congregations don't use instruments on Shabbat, but you can see and feel the rhythm when people are singing and how it's being led mm-hmm. um, by the chazan. You know, like so. To me, there's a connection. Mm-hmm. I know that for a lot of people, they don't see it because, again, it gets so wrapped up in the head, right? But when you when you see people um, praying like in this way, it's called shuffling, where the body is moved. So every part of your body mm-hmm. is moving in prayer. Mm-hmm. So it's not just what you're saying. Your whole body is doing it. It reminds me of being in a black church. And, mm-hmm. and some people will say, like, do you miss it? And I'm like... It's here. It's just that, like some people don't see it because they just, you know, like they can't because mm-hmm. they've never been, you know, been in that experience. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me of being there, you know, minus the whole, you know, the, the Christian theology. Mm-hmm. But the way we pray is very, very similar. I remember to, to being in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes me feel that it's also a lot wrapped up in what's an expression of life, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. in resilience yeah. and saying mm-hmm. like, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to, you know, speak out and I'm going to make noise because that's what you do when you're alive. And it goes back to your, your poem in a way, because you're saying, you know, can you remember to breathe? Mm-hmm. You can't sing if you're not breathing. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And I just, I think about how when people experience trauma, sometimes what they do is they just shut up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They get quiet. Yeah. And I know for me, when I've gone through bouts of, you know, sadness, right, um, it becomes hard to sing or even to hear music. 
because it it's something that reaches to kind of that place that treasure was pointing to like right in the side right maybe maybe there should be some anatomy of like spiritual energy where the side is where right. like the store of I'm like sure I'm sure i people will get emotions. together right. here. I know maybe right? like that is your blank chakra right where are our Reiki masters like are we accurate about this like is the gut where the difficult stuff is yeah yeah. yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in your trade, your profession mm -hmm. as an audiologist, you have to be sensitive to sound too. Yeah. I would, you know, I'm curious because you also you you deal with children and parents. Mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm interested to know if there have been instances where your training allowed you to hear things the parents couldn't hear, and it wasn't about instruments. You know what I'm saying? It's right. about perception and sensitivity. Right, right. And and understanding how we listen. Because a lot of people think it's just a function of the ear. But the ear is a really wonderful way to get sound to the brain. And the brain mm -hmm. is what makes sense of what is happening. And then we take that in through our hearts, right? Like So yeah. like there's a whole process. Um, and being able to sit with people... Um, adults and children alike and, and explain this process because a lot of people don't understand it mm -hmm. um, has been really healing um, and I don't necessarily have a, a, a uh, an example of a, a, a child um, but per se they weren't the patient the patient <laughs> um, was an adult and they came in and they they were like convinced that they had this hearing impairment and when we did the testing um, they had a very, if I remember correctly, a very slight or mild hearing loss. It wasn't something significant to the point where they were reporting such problems communicating. And so um, and so we had a conversation, and they allowed me this space to do this. And not every patient does or is willing to do this. But they allowed me the time to talk about the things that they may not have wanted to hear. Mm. What, what has, like, has there been any added stress in your life? Has, is there something that you don't want to hear? And it was about a kid. Their child was doing or saying something that they did not want to hear. Mm. And so we talked a little bit about like what that means in terms of how that manifests in our body and you know like ways to move forward after that. But um, there are times where we can think about like what is it around us that we are either not paying attention to unaware of or or are actually in resistance against mm. um what are we what are we missing that could inform us and help us as we move forward that's the one that's like one of the instances where mm. we allowed this kind of spiritual process of listening and uh listening to to figure out exactly what's the cause of this impairment that this person is having mm. but i'll also say that um you know especially in families a lot of people will come in and they'll say, hey, my so-and-so, I brought them here because they can't hear, blah, blah, and they're, you know, they're making my life bad, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> oh, and it's goodness. like teaching people how to actually listen mm -hmm. and knowing that it's a skill that can be honed is really, really important. And one of the things, you know, we talk about revolutionary listening. That's one of the things that's in my bio. And um, what that means to me is that you actually listen to people without interruption, without judgment, and without correction. Mm. And if those three things are happening, then you can actually really listen to what somebody is saying. And it gets you off the hook. You don't have to fix anything. And so these are like skills I would teach people because oftentimes, um, you know, people who are hearing impaired, they get in spaces and they don't feel heard. They over talk because they actually can't hear themselves talk. Because usually their voice is is, um, is overshadowed by everybody else's voice, which is why they actually talk louder and dominate conversations. It's one of the key signs of somebody has a hearing impairment is that they dominate conversation. They never allow anybody else to talk because they can't hear them. They can hear their voice. They're talking really loud, right? So, um, wow. So like all, they just got things, deep. <laughs> all of these things are like interwoven and. In, like being able to be an audiologist and work with people who have hearing impairment and their families mm -hmm. has really helped inform my kind of spiritual practice in terms of listening 
and also like you know helping other people learn how to listen because so many people are not being heard mm-hmm. and feel unheard mm-hmm. and that creates so much chaos in our communities well i mean everything you said sounds like it could just be overlaid onto white supremacy mm-hmm. yes <laughs> i was like what <laughs> this sounds like a very audiology focused mm-hmm. explanation for white supremacy mm-hmm. you know it also reminded me of this moment in I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. You guys ever read that book? It's Maya been a Angelo's long time. I need to reread it because it came up in a, in a search the other day. I'm mm-hmm. like, I need to reread this book. Well, you know, her name is Marguerite. Mm-hmm. And she had taken a job at a local Jewish woman's house. Mm-hmm. And they had special dishes for certain meals. Mm-hmm. And this woman refused to call her Marguerite. She said, your name is Mary. And no matter how many times she politely reminded her, my name is Marguerite, Mm -hmm. she called her Mary Mm -hmm. until she broke one of those dishes. Mm -hmm. And when she broke the dishes, all of a sudden she could hear that her name was Marguerite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so, you know, all of that kind of made me think, that's why sometimes there has to be dissent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that people can hear right exactly they weren't able to hear until you drowned until you marched right until you interrupted their flights absolutely (laughs) until you interrupted their nice day at the at the theater right Right. (laughs) then they could hear (laughs) yeah yeah that changes things absolutely Mm -hmm. um and and the other thing too is that not everybody can hear everyone, right? Like, so there are some voices, so we think about this, you know, scientifically, um, there are some places in the in the inner ear that get damaged from noise and uh, medicine and things like that, and it actually makes it so that you can't hear certain pitches, right? Um, and so they, so some people say, well, there's this thing called husband deafness, where they can't hear their wives. And literally, oh. it's because high frequencies are like the first thing to go in, in, in somebody's That's ear. That's convenient. Right? And so then, so then, like you have the people who have high frequency voices, women and children a lot of times, mm-hmm. and then they're like, I can't hear them. And it's not because they don't want to sometimes. <laughs> it's because their, their ear actually isn't producing the sounds loud enough for their brain to hear them, mm-hmm. right? And so translate that into like conversation with people who are trying to get to a you know make a decision or are um, trying to express a point not everybody can hear your voice sometimes they have to hear somebody else's voice Mm -hmm. before they are able to hear what is happening Mm -hmm. because you know like you you see this with you know somebody says i've tried 12 times to tell somebody and as soon as somebody else said it (laughs) they can hear it right (laughs) it's because they couldn't hear it in that voice they had to hear it in a way that they could digest it and sometimes that's not helpful for people because it's like i really want you to hear me Mm -hmm. sometimes people can't and maybe finding that other person who speaks in a voice that this person can understand will help us move forward Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Dropping wisdom. Okay. All that knowledge. Wisdom bombs. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away right now. Um, you know, on this show, we sometimes characterize our region or U.S. America. Um, we've, we've talked about it as possibly a toddler. Mm. Um, and in a lot of different ways, right? So we're, I, I'm curious to know kind of... In in your assessment, what is our region, what is U.S. America missing, right? So we don't want to use the metaphor of like, you know, if you have a hearing impairment, that's not worse. But if you're missing something, then there's there's some things that um, you can't get to. So what what is in our region, in our country, on the road to liberation, what's being missed? I really believe that it's this turning towards each other, this Shuba. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, the days of awe being this time where Jews specifically look at how we have missed the mark, how we can be better because we're moving into a new year. But I feel like, you know, I even made a post about this. Like, what do you need in order for us to turn towards each other? Because there's a whole lot of what people say, well, I need this and I need that. But what is it that you need 
that maybe I can give or somebody else can give you, that we can turn towards each other, not against each other or around each other or behind each other. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? Because when I turn towards you, I can see you Mm -hmm. if I, you know, don't have visual impairment, right? But I can at least, like, there is something about that orientation of being in you front take of somebody. in more yeah. information about them. Exactly. You're, you're at, in a better position to understand them. Yeah, right? like there's there's something about like the humanity that that I can glean from you because I'm in front of you versus when I'm behind you, right? Mm. That that your presence and um, you know your aura, your energy, mm. I can get it better if I'm in front of you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times um, we spend a time a lot of time on uh devices and i had this Mm -hmm. reminder from one of the elders when i was was just in detroit (laughs) and um she she told me her name is mama lila and she told me uh she just emailed me the other day she's been hearing what's happening here in st louis and um, she she once she gave me a reminder about who i am and and i needed that Mm -hmm. but she also says i need voice-to-voice communication I don't do well with email. And I needed that reminder too. Like mm-hmm. so that I and it reminded me to call not only her but a couple other people so that I could hear their voice mm-hmm. and that they could hear my voice and that we could actually have a conversation that wasn't hindered by whatever comes up when we're on these devices. And I really mm-hmm. feel turning towards each other in whatever way that is for you. Like if it's you know, voice to voice communication or face to face communication. Um, or if it's ear to ear, <laughs> um, you know, like finding ways to be in front of somebody in, in, in some way, mm-hmm. because I feel like our humanity is being cut off uh, by these devices and by things we put in front of us, these masks that we wear, including those masks that the police wear mm-hmm. and with those shields and they look like zombies. And I'm trying to figure out, like, are they human? Yeah. Are they actually human? Because, and I don't feel human in front of them. Mm. And one of the things when we when we went to this, when we uh, got into the synagogue um, last Friday night or the Friday before. Are um, you talking about this, what everyone was talking about, where people were trapped in the synagogue? Yes, yes. And if they, okay, so <laughs> as, an expl- as an explanation for oh, our yeah. dear listeners. Yeah. Um, six years ago, a young man was killed by a policeman and it finally came to trial and surprise, surprise, the policeman was found not guilty. Uh, and as a response, all over St. Louis, uh, people have been resisting, protesting, interrupting, disrupting, mm-hmm. which leads us to two Fridays ago. Yes. How did you all wind up in the synagogue and why was it why was it not safe to leave so we um we were in the central west end they the police had at uh, at some point kettled all of us who were on the street mm-hmm. um and by kettle i mean that they have they surrounded us and so there was a dispersal order but there was nowhere to disperse to because they were all around us. There was nowhere to go. It's trapped. Yeah, they trapped us. Right. <laughs> and so um, we were literally uh, in front of CRC, Central Reform Congregation, the synagogue, and um, the Unitarian Church. The first Unitarian Church was across the street, which is actually where the CRC used to uh, meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a synergy there. Anyway, um, so uh, that minister had been called uh, and I think at some point it said, we know, hopefully we, your doors would be open. Thank God their doors were open. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was a Friday night, so it was Shabbat, and people were still kind of milling around after service um, at CRC. And so as we were being kettled um, into, like, this one little small spot, people started running. And because the police were, like, running after people, banging on their shields, um, and they, they do this boom, boom move back, move, and it's it's mm-hmm. really surreal kind of thing. So anyway, people are like running and running and running. So the, we got as many people as we could in the synagogue before they were, they were literally trying to snatch people. And we were like trying to pull them into the synagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so they literally had the, um, sur- the, the synagogue and the church surrounded. Like there was nowhere we could go, which is mm-hmm. why it was unsafe to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they expressed as much to the rabbis, Rabbi Susan and Rabbi Randy, that 
if anybody left that they would be arrested. So they could not leave. Um, so we were trapped basically mm-hmm. inside the synagogue. Um, and we had to wait until we got the quote unquote all clear from the police that they wouldn't arrest anybody if they left the which you're kind of rolling your eyes because it's uh, all clear (laughs) you don't know whether you can trust that given Mm -hmm. the intimidation tactics and all the brutality exactly Mm -hmm. and I will say that there were some people you know they we were getting word that people could go west they couldn't go east but they could go west Mm -hmm. people went west they came back they said nope they've got that blocked off and so people had to wait even longer and I don't believe we all like the, the rest of us, including the staff at CRC, who, who stayed there because they mm-hmm. had nowhere else to go either yeah. um, until like 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine like the stress that um, people who weren't even involved in the, the protest, mm-hmm. right, um, and people who are in support of the protest, like were basically trapped as well because the police had us surrounded. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those terrifying moments. Again, like you I felt like we were in, uh, in one of those zombie movies. Yeah. You know, the people were coming at us, and they were like snatching people. And mm-hmm. um, and one of the one of the things I I um, well, once we got like settled, um, using settled as like a <laughs> in quotations, yeah, right. Um, is that I told people to breathe. You know, like mm-hmm. we're coming back to this breath. I said, see if you can take a deep breath. I know it's hard, but see if you can take a deep breath. And I said, and remind yourself that you are human. Because what happened out there is not what's supposed to happen to humans. Mm-hmm. But you are human. We're going to affirm your humanity in here right, mm-hmm. as best as we can. Um, but there were people having panic attacks. There was somebody who had been tear gas or like pepper sprayed and they were trying to get that under control. Um, so like there was so much happening in that space. And there were kids. Um, there was somebody who literally said, I almost got snatched up. And I know that the only reason why I didn't is because y'all pulled me in. Mm. Um, so like there was just so much with the reminder to breathe and the reminder that we are actually humans because it I mean just I have to remind myself so that I say it out loud you know hope that other people also yeah. you know mm-hmm. if they need the reminder they can get it too that that was such a terrifying moment mm-hmm. um, and to know that like they were like threatening to come in um, you know it, it, it it's just like the worst of whatever you could think of could yeah. happen when people are just saying, please stop killing us. That's all they're saying, but they can't hear us. Right. And I'm wondering, like, who whose voice will they hear? Like, what will it take? Whose voice are they going to hear? I don't know. Because mm-hmm. clearly, like, it, it hasn't been our voice, right? Mm-hmm. Now, although I believe that there are some people who are listening that weren't listening Mm-hmm. But those, are, I don't know if those are the people who can like change things, right. right? But I know that they're like neighbors and shop owners and things like that who are like, you know what? I'm I'm on board. Like I'm on board with stop killing us, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can get on board with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and some of it, it took you know the, their window being broken. It took their um their their day being disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, some people it took you know the watching the police beat up on grandmothers and 13-year-olds. They mm-hmm. were like, oh, so they're out of control. Mm-hmm. And I can see this. It's in plain view. There's no, like, veil anymore. My veil has been lifted. Mm-hmm. Thank God. But, like, I don't know if those are the people who can, like, make systemic change that makes it so that they will stop killing us. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know whose voice they would hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all working in different arenas, trying to create whatever that centering behavior would be that would call people to attention so they are able to hear you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ever work with a room full of children, sometimes people say, clap once if you hear my hand, <laughs> right. clap twice if you hear my voice. Right? Right. And then people get centered. Right, right, they right. can yeah. pay attention then. Right, right, right. So... I don't love that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it would be a combination of disruption, policy change, the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever it is, it has to coalesce into um, you know, something permanent. Mm-hmm. And I always think back to the period of enslavement in that 
um, you know, the South kind of stood up as a block when it was floated that maybe slavery should just be abolished. And they said, well, let's do a 20-year plan. Let's ease out of it. <laughs> and people were like, but we've been easing out of it for 400 years. Right. Like, we right. just need to just rip off this Band-Aid. Yeah. And, you know, they just couldn't hear until it was at their doorstep. With right. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. They just, and they resisted to the end. Mm-hmm. They resisted unto death. Right. Still resisting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, with tiki torches now. Right, right, yeah. right. From five below. Right. Yes. <laughs> they do not five below does not connect themselves with those <laughs> right. Right, right. <laughs> right right they have made this clear <laughs> well i think like to speak to that um one of the things that i've really tried my best to focus on is knowing that my my brain and my body my body will follow my brain right mm-hmm. and vice versa what if, if if liberation comes, right? Excuse me, when liberation comes, mm-hmm. what does it feel like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and if I if I can imagine in my mind's eye that's what it is, then how can I not live in that right now? Like mm-hmm. how can I live like I am liberated once I know what it tastes like, what it smells like, what it looks like? what it sounds like so that's a practice right it's a practice for me to figure out what that is and then my brother langston says he takes it a step further and he says and how am i how am i a being how am i a person in as a how am i when i'm liberated like, am i different with people when i'm liberated than when i'm oppressed mm-hmm. and if so how can i act from that now mm-hmm. So that I'm already acting and living in my own liberation because that's, I think, the change that I want. Like, if people are acting from liberation and not oppression, then to me, things have to change mm-hmm. because I'm different. Mm-hmm. I'm acting as if I'm liberated because I really believe that I was born free. This oppression is, um, it is a, a, uh, it is a symptom of what's happening here in, in, our, in our world, mm-hmm. but it is not, I am not oppressed. I am experiencing as an experience, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a liberated person. I'm mm-hmm. free. I'm mm-hmm. born free. But how am I acting like I'm free? How am I living like I'm free? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of this experience that I'm hoping to like engage myself in as well as other people. Like if we can really experience it, like mm-hmm. if I can know what it is, then I can live it. And when I'm living liberated, then this circumstance of oppression has to go away because it's not a reality anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's powerful on a lot of levels. It is. So as you move into your spiritual practice, because you put us all on notice here recently. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that you would not be going to their workhouse next month. <laughs> Right. So, <laughs> so, so you've already decided to quote unquote liberate yourself. Yes. Into mm-hmm. a vision for your life yeah. that fits mm-hmm. how you want to move through the world. Yeah. Or how you already are moving. <laughs> yeah. How you are already move in the world. Let's right? get our tenses right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So this means the audiology practice. Mm-hmm. No. The rabbi mantle, yes. Mm-hmm. How is that going to happen? So, um, you know, I was talking about that visioning process, mm-hmm. and I actually did vision with a life coach, mm-hmm. um, and um, we we visioned this out, uh, and it mm-hmm. took nine months. And uh, I, at first, I was very skeptical because I was like. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying I want this, but I was scared because I'm like, what's going to happen? I'm not going to have income yeah. like coming in every two weeks and um, health insurance and all this other stuff. And I was, my life coach reminded me about like what I was doing. We had a plan, like there was this whole plan. And this plan was that by 
um, by Rosh Hashanah, mm-hmm. 57, 78, that I would be no longer a full-time audiologist and that I would be moving into um, full-time spiritual leadership. And that happened. Mm-hmm. And so I know that when you <laughs> when you can see, because we've had to, we had we literally we literally wrote out what does it feel like, mm-hmm. what does it look like, you know, like I had to envision what it what is it what does it sound like, what is you know, like all of these things. We did that, and that's the only way I knew when it was successful, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how I I will know when we are have achieved liberation because what it feels like, sounds like, tastes like you know, looks like will be. And so that's what I've done. Um, I don't know what rabbinical school I'm going to go to. Um, what I do know is that uh, the process is, is started. Um, and I've also already started leading service. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you don't have to necessarily be a rabbi to do what I'm doing. However, I feel like there, um, there just aren't enough rabbis of color mm-hmm. um, that are doing like or even even maybe even have the ability to say and do uh, things that uh, in this in this realm because um, they you know because once you have a congregation you know you kind of you know you, you, you are beholden to whatever happens with the board or the congregation but being a rabbi being able to um, lead services and participate in um, communal ritual as well as being a person who can, you know, speak truth to power, I feel like that's my calling, and I'm mm-hmm. stepping into it. Mm-hmm. I have stepped into it. Mm-hmm. It is the thing <laughs> I'm doing, right? And it's a reminder for myself that that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, it was scary um, when I gave notice at, at uh, the center and said, "Hey, I'm done." Um, and it's officially I'm done. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I know that. The universe uh, supported this idea. It wouldn't have been an idea in my mind's eye if it couldn't be supported. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really clear that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I'm really happy to be moving into this, knowing that um, it will be a successful journey. Ashe, and it is so. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's especially exciting because I've I've heard before around um, around pastors that um, different types of pastors show different um, views of God, mm. and I think similarly it, as you stepping into being a rabbi, and I think about that part in your poem where you're talking about, you know, can you see the spark of humanity in me? Mm-hmm. And that's something that's unmistakable if mm. you're in that role and and the way that you might carry out that role as well. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to looking deeper into the traditions of Judaism. There's so much wisdom there um, to be brought to bear in this work as a social activist and a spiritual leader. I think of even just one thing. Um, so there's, when we study um, together, it's called chavuta, which the root of that is friend. Chavir mm. is friend. Mm. And so even though this is a very spirited relationship we may disagree we're gonna like you know figure out what the facts are and we're gonna debate the facts but the point is that we deepen our friendship Hmm. and to even go into this relationship knowing that knowing that i'm not always going to agree with you Mm -hmm. and that's going to be okay Mm -hmm. and we're still going to be friends enlightens the kind of relationships that we set up other places right um and it's one of the things that we've um started to bring into like uh, trainings around like anti-racism and anti-semitism is like studying together and being in fellowship with one another and meeting a person knowing that my point is to be a friend and to establish a relationship that isn't just about what we're going to disagree on or what we may agree on but like how what is the basis for a friendship mm. and a relationship like with a real relationship as opposed to like I'm only going to talk to people I care that that um, care about the same issues as me. Mm-hmm. I'm only going to talk to people who believe everything I believe because mm-hmm. that's that's not a real relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I mean, just like all of these different things, the wisdom of the sages in all traditions are like so rich, and I feel like sometimes we don't dig deep enough into that to like gather. We don't have to recreate this thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Like our ancestors left a 
a fantastic blueprint <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if we would mm-hmm. but just like look at it and and use it as a guide mm-hmm. so true yeah. you know I think that um we're gonna let that stand as the mm-hmm. final word so questions for listeners what is the sound of your descent Co-op Baruch Frazier has blessed us with a rich conversation about sound, and we are so grateful that he was here to to collaborate on this conversation with us. But for you listeners, how does spirituality energize your sound of descent? And whose beat keeps you going? And maybe finally, how are you going to turn towards other people? Meditate on that. (laughs) You can visit whoraisedyoupodcast.com to learn more and support us. You can book us or talk to our guests about that or donate to buy us a cup of tea today. We're enjoying vanilla chai. Thank you, Teetopia. And support media by people of color from flyover country. You can like us on Facebook and we're on Instagram at whoraised. Email us at whoraisedyoupodcast.com to suggest poets, guests, topics, and to help with transcription. We're co-hosted by Treasure Shields Redmond and Karen Jialian Yang. We have consulting by Farfetch Collective. You should contact wearefarfetched at gmail.com to learn more about how they can help you launch or expand your project, business, or nonprofit with their agency framework. If you want to try this tea from Teetopia, you can go to teetopiastl.com and have a graceful Teetopia experience. Thank you so much, Kwok, for being a guest here. You are beaming, and I love it. How can we support you? How can our listeners support you? Um, They can find us on Facebook, and um, right now we're going to figure out how to set up a a way for people to support us uh, via, I guess, the internet platform. But right now, just find us on Facebook, follow us. What's the what what's the name? Oh, Justice Beats. Okay. Yeah, Justice right. Beats. Yeah. Justice Beats. Okay. And then hopefully, uh, as your rabbi journey unfolds, something will be there. Some update maybe. Uh, <laughs> 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 Baby.